Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We're brought to you today by Theragun, Good Bad Crazy Martinis. And Jim, the bad news is the Democrats will still be controlling the House of Representatives. The good news is that the Republicans are narrowing the majority by the Democrats, uh, much more than a lot of folks expected. In fact, a lot of folks expected Democrats to expand their majority. That's not going to happen. Uh, If you look at the latest Politico map, it's 222 for the Democrats, 206 for the Republicans, and the Republicans leading in all the races that haven't been called yet, which I guess would add up to seven. Uh, If they win them all, then it's 222 to 213. They would need to win over, I guess, five votes uh, to to block Democratic legislation. But one of the ones that Politico still says is up in the air, and it probably will be subject to legal action here, is in Iowa's second congressional district. It's the one the Democrats have held for several congressional cycles now. Uh, Dave Lowesback was a Democrat who won it several times. He did not run this year. And so it was an open seat, and according to the Associated Press, Iowa officials on Monday certified a Republican candidate as the winner by six votes. Yeah, six. Not 60, not 600, not 6,000. Six votes of an open seat in the U.S. House in what is shaping up to be the closest congressional election in decades. Republican Marionette Miller-Meeks finished ahead of Democrat Rita Hart in the second district after a recount saw her 47-vote lead steadily dwindled to single digits. The State Board of Canvas voted five to nothing Monday afternoon to certify Miller Meeks as the winner over Hart by a count of 196,964 to 196,958. And uh, Jim, uh, it's at least the closest U.S. House race since 1984 and the tightest in Iowa since the Wilson administration. So uh, it's not a race I think most Republicans expected. It's not going to flip the majority. But uh, it shows that things are are getting closer and closer on the House side. And hopefully that means some really bad ideas die in the next two years. Yeah, and I think this is particularly good news just because because of incidents like Dino Rossi's uh, gubernatorial race in Washington back in, I think it was 2004, uh, Al Franken's race in Minnesota back in 2008. There's this popular perception amongst a lot of Republicans uh, that we always lose the close ones, and that it's usually because of fraud or cheating or uh, ballots being found in the trunk of a car or something like that, that unless a Republican wins by a solid majority on election night, that Democrats can scare up as many votes as they need in the, uh, in the post-election day counting to make up any margin. Well, look, this has been counted and recounted, and lo and behold, the Republican, Marionette Miller-Meeks, um, has defeated Rita Hart by, as you said, six votes. Um, even Burgess Owens is calling that one a close race. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I suppose the only person who could say, wow, it's a landslide, would be the uh, uh, Republican state legislator in Virginia who won by you know, drawing names out of a hat after it became an, an exact tie. So one, yes, there's this wonderful message of, hey, you know what? <laughs> if you ever felt like your vote doesn't count, well, it still doesn't count. You still, but you and five of your friends could end up making the difference in any type of these races. Uh, no, really, you should vote if you have this sort of thing. This is probably the uh, closest race in a while. Now, look, yes, there are legal steps that can be taken. I guess the argument of the uh, Hart campaign is uh, that they think there's additional, you know, disputed ballots that they can get back in there. And only needing six, I suppose stranger things have happened. Uh, but right now, it looks like this is going to be uh, Iowa is a state that is not known for shenanigans. It is known for 
relatively clear laws and uh, jurisdiction and all that stuff. It's going to be overseen by the Chief Justice of the Iowa Supreme Court, and they will decide who would fill that seat by December 8th. So this is not going to drag on forever. I do like this line in the Des Moines Register, though. Um, Hart could make a final appeal to the U.S. House of Representatives, which the Democrats control, if the state panel rules against her. Um, if for some reason the Democrats in the House of Representatives decided, yeah, we know the Iowans have said that the Republican won, but we here in Washington from, you know, a couple hundred miles away, we've decided who actually won and we believe it was the Democrat. I don't want to hear anything about a stolen election ever again for the rest of my life, Greg. Well, that's what happened in that Indiana race back in 1984, I believe. And they ended up actually redoing the whole election. It was very ugly. And we certainly don't want to go down that road again. So uh, congratulations, at least for the moment, to Marionette Miller-Meeks with the first name of Marionette. Let's hope she's not a, a puppet of the establishment. But uh, I was going to say, you knew that there's going to be, my opponent is a puppet type ass. <laughs> Must have been deployed at some point. Just look at her name, Marionette. Six votes, man. Can't you imagine just getting there late and there's a long line and you're like, ah, what's the point? But uh, Not only that, the, the six other people behind you who you knew were <laughs> going to vote the same way did the same thing. You know, as much as, uh, you know, Hart is kicking the dirt right now and frustrated and all that stuff, when you come within a handful of votes of winning, like for example, I don't know, John James has run out of Senate races and that he was surprisingly close in 2018. He was really close in 2020. Um, now there is no Senate race in Michigan. I don't know if he's interested in running for governor, but once you've demonstrated that you can come really close more than one cycle, um, that's good with donors, that's good with getting the state party to support you, that's good with getting uh, national party committees to support you. So look, if you come within a handful of votes, it's not the end of the world. And no, you don't need to turn this into uh, waving the bloody shirt and, and all of that kind of stuff. Sometimes you'll lose by a few and that's just the way the cookie crumbles. And uh, I suspect that as frustrating as it is for Hart, it's probably not the last we're ever going to see of her in Iowa politics. No, I have a feeling that uh, there could be a rematch. Usually when the races are this close, especially in an open race, it's pretty common to see a rerun. But uh, assuming there's a Biden administration and a Democratic majority in the House, I have a feeling that Miller Meeks might actually do even better next time. But uh, I guess we'll see about that. But look, if you've had to uh, withstand essentially four weeks of recount tension in Iowa's 2nd Congressional District or other places around the country. The stress builds. You had the whole election season and now the, the vote count hanging there by a thread. You need some stress relief and the stress of daily life weighs on all of us. So whether you're an elite athlete, a politician, just a regular person trying to get through the day, muscle pain and muscle tension is a real thing. And like we've been talking about, Theragun, does an excellent job of relieving that tension. Theragun is really cutting edge. There's many different models of the Theragun and it hooks up to the app on your phone and you decide on your app which particular therapy you want and then the app directs the Theragun. All you really have to do is hold it. So whether it's one particular muscle group or whether you want to target a number of different areas and it kind of rotates around, uh, it really, really works well. I like it, my wife really likes it uh, and it definitely has a lot of different uh, programs for you to, to work out the kinks. It's also got a really nice uh, wind down routine a little bit before bedtime. Excellent, excellent product. So that's why we use the Theragun. And you should use Theragun, the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And now it is as quiet as an electric toothbrush. It's because the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor that is so quiet 
you will wonder if it is on, while you soothe your aching muscles with Theragun's signature power, amplitude, and effectiveness. Try Theragun for 30 days. There's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need, starting at only $199. Go to theragun.com slash martini right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com slash martini, theragun.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini, which uh, for some people on this podcast was the bad martini about, oh, I don't know, 11 months ago, <laughs> at least on, on some levels. You, you uh, explored, maybe it was a little more recent than that, eight or nine months ago, where you were looking at the uh, origins of uh, the coronavirus in, in Wuhan and in China and the labs and the markets and all sorts of other things. And, and when we saw kind of the, the leaked out footage of all the drastic uh, lengths to which the Chinese were going to lock down the virus, welding people's doors shut. And then we were hearing, yeah, all told, I think there was about 3,000 deaths. And uh, you listen to those numbers and look at those pictures and you're thinking something doesn't quite add up here. Well, something isn't quite adding up here. The Chinese were doctoring the data when they knew things were much more severe uh, pretty early on here. Nick Payton Walsh from CNN has been looking at the numbers and the revelations in leaked documents, and here's some of what he reported yesterday on CNN. The documents provide a number of key revelations about the province of Hubei, home to the epicenter city of Wuhan. Firstly, some of the death tolls were off. The worst day in these reports is February the 17th, where these say 196 people who were confirmed cases died. But that day, they only announced 93. China was also circulating internally bigger, more detailed totals for new cases in Hubei. For one day in February, recording internally nearly 6,000 new cases. Some diagnosed by tests, others clinically by doctors and some suspected because of symptoms and contacts, but all pretty serious. Yet publicly that day, China reported nationwide about 2,500 new confirmed cases. Perhaps the most remarkable revelation concerns early December, the moment when COVID-19 first emerged in China. Startlingly, these documents reveal there was an enormous spike in influenza cases in Hubei, right when studies have shown the very first known patients were infected with COVID-19. 20 times the number of flu cases compared to the same week the year before. So, Jim, uh, this is just numbers and data from the uh, province where Wuhan is. We don't know what it's like necessarily in the rest of China or whether this is the exhaustive data. But coming to the conclusion that China knew earlier what the real deal was, tried to cover it up to make it look like they were in control of this thing, that's pretty much our suspicion from the get-go. Uh, who knows what else we'll learn about this, but uh, it's been confirmed, and because of China's inability to admit the, the depths of this. Uh, it got to Italy, other places, obviously eventually the United States, and who knows how much uh, better of a head start we could have gotten if the Chinese had just been honest from the get-go. Indeed, Greg. And, you know, I wrote about this at some length in today's Morning Jolt newsletter. Um, and I guess I'd characterize it as a fascinating but ultimately frustrating work of journalism. I've seen a bunch of folks like, ah, well, it's CNN. What do you expect? You know, no, actually, no, this, this is this is good journalism. People say, oh, we already knew this. Well, look, we, we strongly suspected this. This is new hard numbers from documents that the Chinese government did not want to get out. Uh, and, you know, Patton Walsh goes through an extensive description of how they uh, use basically every method you could possibly think of to attempt to verify the data. It all appears to check out. 
Um, so, you know, this is real journalism and I don't want to wrap Nick, Wal Nick Patton Walsh on the knuckles too much for what strikes me as a good job, but it does have some frustrating elements to it. And one of them is the sense that, you know, one or two points they point out that there's no, you know, there's no evidence this was deliberate misleading uh, figures and information put out by the Chinese government. Of course, you read a little further down in the story, and that's pretty much what their experts are saying, that, you know, nobody believed this was an accidental mistake, that this was people who were uh, not doing a good job on the ground, who were in a pretty bad situation with, uh, with the state of the virus and how quickly it was spreading and how quickly people were uh, getting sick and in some cases dying, and it was taking apparently 23 days for them to process test results. You know, you think you're frustrated if you have to wait four days, five days, maybe even a week for test results there in the U.S. Try being told, oh, yeah, a little more than three weeks, we'll get back to you. Um, but you add it all up, and it basically points to a situation. That it matches up with what we suspected. I think one of the aspects that jumps out at me the most um, is this recognition of where at one point he says, he says there's no further evidence of um, uh, this being pointing to a the lab accident or... Uh, lab release or, or something like that. But there's this one sentence in the report that kind of jumps out at me. It says, there is one mention, this is in these memos created by the Hubei, which is the province or state around uh, Wuhan. Uh, one mention of subpar facilities at a bacterial and toxic species preservation center, though the point is not elaborated on, nor is its significance made clear. I don't want to overstate this, but obviously that, you know, as soon as I saw that, I was like, okay, so, a bacterial and toxic species preservation center. Greg, as of this morning, if you Google the term bacterial and toxic species preservation center, the only reference to those words in that order comes in this CNN report, which is kind of interesting. So then you look a little bit further and you just look for, or also you look for just simply toxic species preservation center. Once again, the only thing you find is in that Google report. So you can find a typical species preservation center in Guangdong, China. By the way, it's like 500 miles away from Wuhan. So it's not like that's just down the road, and there's not really any good sense of why the Hubei CDC would be taking a look at a you know a medical facility 500 miles away. Uh, I'm sorry, so that's Wuhan University. Guangdong has the Microbial Species Preservation Center. Uh, that's 500 miles away. It doesn't make a lot of sense of why that would be. But then I found one article that is not very well translated from a Chinese news site that refers to a microbial, parentheses, toxin, species preservation center at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yes, this is the Wuhan Institute of Virology that people have been speculating about since this pandemic began. Does this prove it's something, there's a connection there? No, but it does say, interesting, that in this document by the Hubei CDC, they had some concerns about quote unquote subpar facilities at this place. We don't know that that's the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but certainly seems like that could be the case. Uh, it's probably the only toxic species preservation center within Hubei province. And if it's subpar, it's kind of interesting. The sort of thing that makes you say, hmm, raises an eyebrow. Uh, does not prove that this pandemic all started because of a lab, but uh, it certainly strikes me as an avenue worth further investigation. Well, absolutely right. And of course, if uh, that's, like we said, that's what's happening in one province, who knows what happened in the other. So it does uh, cast a, a major blow to the Andrew Cuomo uh, theory that it's a European virus, right, Jim? Yeah, and look, this is... <laughs> I'm kind of struck by, uh, because somebody said, well, look, if you, know, if you can find one person from Europe who came here before a person from China does, that means it's a European virus. No, <laughs> no, that's not the way it works. Look, the, the, there's no disputing the first major outbreak of this um, st started in the city of Wuhan. Uh, 
Now, the other day in the jolt, I made the note that, look, as far as we can tell from all the studies that have been done, there's probably about 40% of the population is asymptomatic. If you want to track this back to patient zero, meaning the first person to catch the virus, that it either comes from a live animal or a dead animal, dead animal tissue, blood samples, some way this virus gets into a person. Well, there's a four in 10 chance that person isn't going to have any symptoms. And so they're going to walk around and they're going to interact with people. They can give the virus to someone else. So there's a four in 10 chance that that person will have that. So getting back to that first person, it's going to be very, very tricky. We probably, my guess is we're never going to find out exactly how it shakes out. Um, so is it possible that someone outside of Wuhan uh, caught it and then they came into the city and that's when you started seeing more cases? Yeah, it's possible. But the idea that because of, oh, one person in Europe had it, we can say it's a European virus. No, nope, no, it doesn't work that way. But I'm sure listeners to this program will not be surprised that uh, Governor Cuomo got something wrong. Yeah, yeah. Hard to believe that he might uh, <laughs> be off target on something like that. Hey, guys, it's Mock and Daisy from the Chicks on the Right. And we're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. If you've been stressed lately with the information overload on social media or just don't feel like anything in the news makes sense anymore, don't worry, because we're here to clear things up. Every week we discuss topics like cancel culture, national crisis, what's happening to our new generations. And if you're just plain tired of people trying to tell you what to do or how to live your life, we tackle that too. Find out more by going to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave a comment or review and subscribe. All right, Jim, let's talk about another aspect of COVID now as uh, the medical community has uh, understandably focused so much on COVID. We know that there are other issues that have uh, people concerned. There have been recent reports about how uh, non-COVID related deaths at nursing homes have been on the rise due to neglect because people are focused more on the COVID patients also because their family members are not allowed in the nursing homes, and so they don't have strong advocates. It's kind of a, a big mess at uh, many different nursing homes. We also have people not going to get regular tests and checkups, so we don't know what the uh, diagnoses and other health problems are going to be coming down the road. And we also have, uh, according to a lot of folks, uh, rising numbers of suicide, depression, mental illness, that sort of thing. And I'm wondering if the latest columnist for the Detroit Free Press fits into that latest category. I'm not even being uh, facetious about that. It's a guy by the name of Michael J. Stern, and he writes this, as coronavirus burns an exponential path of destruction across the American terrain, an insidious blanket of shadow damage is quietly unfurling in its name. It's not just the death and scarred lungs. COVID-19 has turned every man, woman, and child into a potential serial killer. So far, I've been fortunate. But not a day goes by that I don't wonder whether my streak of good luck is about to end because the person in front of me in the grocery store is wearing a mask below his nose, expelling a cloud of radioactive COVID dust that I cannot escape, short of dropping $50 on the conveyor belt and trying to outrun the security guard. With alcoholism, opioid addiction, or smoking, we stand a fighting chance. But COVID-19 has turned the most necessary part of living, breathing into a deadly event. If there's anything that can make us hate our neighbors, it's the possibility that their very existence, every breath they exhale, could be lethal. Jim, encouraging folks to be careful is one thing right now. Suggesting that we're all serial killers because we exhale, I'm pretty sure that's not helping anybody. No, and, and this is probably, a, probably one of those pull up a chair folks, Jim's going to rant a bit uh, <laughs> type moments. So the first thing to keep in mind is that if someone writes a column that is full of common sense, right, that says, look, nobody's expecting perfection here. It's probably a good idea to wear a mask if you're going to be around lots of people. It's a good idea to wear a mask if you're going to be inside an enclosed space. You're going to the grocery store, this, there's a good chance that you're 
uh, state or locality already requires it. But, you know, don't be that guy who has to be a pain in the neck about it. Put it on. Uh, don't host a massive party with lots of people. Don't go to a bar that's crowded. Avoid crowds. Try to minimize, you know, stick to your household. If you want to have one other household who's kind of your, your partner uh, for, for getting through this, fine. Uh, you don't have to wipe down every piece of playground with a, with a wipey every single chance. You know, like use common sense and you'll probably be okay. One of the things I've been pointing out to people is that if you've managed to get through uh, where we're now in about month nine of this pandemic, if you, if you haven't caught it in the past nine months, it probably means the precautions that you're using are working. And I can't guarantee it. I'm not a doctor. Don't, you know, uh, it's also always possible that you end up encountering someone who you just haven't run into anybody who was, who was uh, contagious at that point. Um, and it's possible at some point you will, but you know, it's, it's impossible to be 100% protected. We can't put you in bubble wrap before you go out into the world. Just do your best. Somebody writes that it's not going to get a particularly strong reaction. If somebody says you are a serial killer for every time you leave the house. Well, of course people are going to react to that and it's going to get a lot of traffic. It's going to get a lot of attention. It's going to get a lot of people discussing, even if it's a lot of people saying, this is ridiculous. What is wrong with this columnist? He's a maniac. Um, that, you know, when you click on a website, they can't tell whether you're clicking on it because you can't believe somebody wrote it and you think it's so stupid or whether you're clicking on it because you like it or because you think it's terrific. And when you share it on social media to say, look what this idiot wrote, you are helping that person, right? If you think this person is, uh, if this is the worst thing ever, sharing it on social media is about the best thing. And yet people do this. People say, oh my God, look at this idiot all the time. That's what you see on Twitter. That's what you see on Facebook. And then more people are like, you know, uh, uh, let's, let's, you know, let's, let's mock this person. Let's get this person. You end up, by the way, all you've done is drive up that person's traffic for the day, which probably was at least on some level their goal. Like nobody wants to write something and not have it get response. So when, as soon as the, the, you might say, oh goodness, a responsible editor would look at this and say, I really need this columnist to take a few weeks off. They're really starting to become paranoid and, uh, uh, troubled and they're, you know, you, you don't, don't, please don't call our readers serial killers. Would, would, I'm going to have that stitched on a throw pillow and just have that in the corner of every newsroom <laughs> in America. Please don't call our, our readers serial killers. The other thing is though, as I mentioned, Greg, we're in month nine of this. It, it's now, you know, it, it's, it's now giving birth, so to speak. And we've had to live with not seeing the people we usually do. We've had to live with not leaving the house. We haven't been able to travel, go to the movies, uh, see elderly relatives if they're in a nursing home. You know, we, we've been through something very, very stressful. And I think you're starting to see some people crack under that pressure. You're starting to see some people get really obsessed. And I suspect this is a, uh, a side effect of the Karenism we've seen. The people who get hyper about, you know, your mask is too low on your nose and, uh, the woman who yelled at myself and my wife for not walking single file when we were walking through the woods. You know, there are people, Karenism, this idea of nagging other people for not living up to some standard, gives people a sense of empowerment. They feel like they're doing something. This, this whole pandemic makes all of us feel helpless. If there were like, you know, little green things floating around that we could see and we could swat at them with like a tennis racket or something, we'd all feel better. We could do something to stop spreading. The only thing we can do is wear a mask. You don't know whether you got it or not. Try to avoid people. And this is, you know, this is a real drag. It really is sucking the joy out of life. We're almost through this, people, right? It's now December 1st. I think probably around the 12th, they'll start you know, uh, inoculating the most vulnerable categories. 
probably by December, we'll have a couple million done. By the way, keep in mind, most of these are two doses. Apparently, I said the other day, it sounded like I said there were 82 doses. What I mean is, the vac- most of the vaccines we've seen require one dose at one point, and then a month later, they give you a booster shot, and that kind of completes uh, your inoculation against uh, SARS-CoV-2. But anyway, that's where we are. And Greg, I don't know about you, like I'm not surprised to see certain people in media starting to crack. Greg, I, I kind of think some people in media were not that sane before all this thing started. And uh, so here we are. We're at the point where, you know, just walking around and breathing is now putting you on par with Jack the Ripper and Charles Manson and all the rest. Yeah, doesn't there have to be some sort of intentionality to be branded a serial killer? I mean... Nobody accidentally becomes a serial killer. You know? Oh, I tripped and my knife stabbed into all those people. Yes. Taking your raisin bran and your ground beef to the checkout line does not make you a serial killer. Words have meaning, people. All right, Jim, on that note, very good. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about Jim's new book, Hunting for Horsemen. Also, don't forget about our friends at Theragun, theragun.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. We're always very, very grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Also, remember, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day, and please join us Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.